Listener Production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode, I'm in a workshop in Auckland. It's late afternoon and my guest has arrived after an almost full day of regular work to spend a few hours in the evening here with friends, family and a very devoted professional crew prepping his cars as a busy New Zealand summer of Speedway continues. Around us are tools, trophies and some memorabilia, lots of tyres. There is a pristine speed car or midget as they're often called just beside us in all its winning glory. Michael Pickens has done lots of that during his career and not just at home. The Aussies have great respect for him and tend to step things up when he heads over the Tasman to compete and as you'll hear he's made quite a reputation for himself in the heartland too, America. The speed car has no wings. It's powered by a high-revving four-cylinder engine that sounds joyous in full flight. The driver sits just behind the engine, almost over the rear wheels, and the seating position is different to many race cars. A cheeky colleague once described it like sitting on a dunny with a steering wheel in your hands and a brake and accelerator under each foot. Critics will argue they're dangerous at times, but in a pack, sideways, sliding past one another in a manner that seems almost impossible, where bravery is needed to anticipate the smallest of gaps opening. You have to stop and admire those good drivers. Michael is among the very best you will find right now. His likeable personality and easygoing style shield a kind of calculating fearlessness, but his deep-set eyes leave you in no doubt of his intentions when that helmet goes on. Just outside the big door to the workshop where we are sitting for the pod is the team's transporter with a sprint car inside. Michael somehow juggles a beautiful family, work and a race program running both the speed car and the sprint car, sometimes on the same night. The sprint car is a V8-powered weapon. Think of it like the big brother with wings, lots of horsepower, and they are designed to turn, to slide. Those things in a bullring are something else, as James McFadden described in his episode with us very recently. A quick thanks to some TV colleagues in Dean Neal, and Dave Turner from Australia and New Zealand respectively, who kindly allowed us to use a little slice or two of their broadcasts for this chat. Both Dean and Dave do great things covering the sport on their respective sides of the ditch. Now, I've been wanting to do this episode for some time. Michael scored the first of now more than 200 midget feature race wins as a 17-year-old, and he's chalked up 10 New Zealand speed car titles. Keep an ear out for our chat about racing stateside and Chili Bowl, Speedway indoors in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The things that Michael has been doing and would like to do to help the sport grow in this part of the world and a bit of a revelation on his future plans too. That's later. As usual, we begin with early life and how the call to race would prove to be a powerful one even if it didn't involve four wheels to begin with. 
Michael Pickens, hello. It is awesome to get you on for a uh, for a chat. A lot of people probably don't realise, but life for you in motor racing terms kind of started on two wheels, didn't it? Yeah, I um, yeah I, I grew up on a farm riding dirt bikes, and um, that seems like a long time ago now. But um, <laughs> that you know that led me into um, ironically in, into go karts. Only for the mere fact we moved into the city, and I couldn't um, ride the dirt bikes. I was annoying the shit out of the neighbours. So. <laughs> I, um, where, where, where was the farm? Whereabouts were you? Uh, out, out of Auckland, just out of the CBD? Uh, in Coatesville, yes, yeah, so yeah, not, nice. not far from the CBD. And um, yeah, we moved into the city, like I say, and um, gnawing the shit out of the neighbours and, and uh, pissing my dad to do something. And we went down to the um, the go-kart track. So um, Mount Wellington go-kart track is, is where it all started for yeah, me. Yeah, nice. The bikes, before we venture into, into carts here, were what, little like, 200 Honda or something, or what, what's, what was the bike? Yeah, uh, I started on a little PW50 yeah. and two-wheeler, and then... Uh, At what age? What age are we talking here? Oh, man, I would have been five or six years old, maybe, after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and then we had a little uh, a quad bike um, that I used to hoon around on as well, and then uh, then next R200. Yeah. Um, so I, I, had a, I had a ball, mate. That was, um, that was um, me every day after school. Um, I just disappeared for a few hours until it got dark and then either that or run out of gas. Um, I remember when I was a young fella putting water in the petrol tank thinking I'd, I'd keep going and um, <laughs> learned pretty quick that didn't work. <laughs> what did that do to the bike? <laughs> oh, I never said anything to my dad. He just took it to the bike shop and I guess I must have, must have said, oh, someone's put water in this. So I shrugged my shoulders and <laughs> we carried on. But um, Were you full gas? Were you were you from the get-go, you know, right into it and, and uh, no fear? What were you like? Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose so. I mean, although I wasn't racing anyone, so um, yeah, you know, later on when it when it got to racing, then um, then the, I guess the elbows started coming out for sure. Yeah. yeah. So the karting was what dirt carts or circuit racing? What, what, what you know, kart sport New Zealand? What was it? Yeah, kart sport New Zealand. So yeah. we started in um, junior restricted. Yeah. Um, my very first cart was an old Arrow A9X, if I remember correctly. Nice. What year? What year is this? Can you remember? Oh man, I, I, I want to say it would be about ninety four, ninety five, somewhere around there. Um, and my second ever cart was um, Scott Dixon's old Amiga. Oh wow! And I had I got it. Um, you bought it from the Dixons, or yeah, or? from Ron Dixon. Wow! And and I had his uh, Scott's old race suit. Fantastic. I mean, no one knew who Scott Dixon was or what he was going to become back then. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I still had the race suit to this yeah. day and the cart for that matter. But um, yeah, Ron had uh, Amiga carts out in um, uh, sort of South Auckland area, yeah. and um, yeah, we got to got to know them. And um, that yeah, I mean, that were, they were the old Mount Wellington cart days, and and we ran it um, at Rosebank Road also, nice. at, at, which was Auckland cart track. Did it click? Straight away, or was it the kind of thing you crept up on? Um, the karting for us was was tough because um, my dad's not mechanically minded at all, mm. and and I was only a young fella, of course. So it was it was it was tough because we relied on other people to help us, and people will only help you so much, much. of course. So yeah. um, we won some won some um, races and and championships and bits and pieces, but um, yeah, I'm not going to lie, it was it was it was tough from the mechanical point of view. Dri- driving it was was a lot of fun and. Um, I really enjoyed it, but um, that is why um, part of the reason why I got into speedways just and once again just by chance, really no real planning or, or, or career path or anything like that. It was the fact that they ran um, quarter midgets and solar bikes at the speedway at 
uh, Rosebank Road, which was oh, yeah. Auckland Kart Tracks. So, yeah. um, and it was sort of been to Speedway, not religiously or anything like that, but as a young fellow, I'd, I'd, my dad would take me along every once in a while and um, we thought, oh, well, let's, you know, let's give this a go. And, and um, they, the guys were good enough to, to give me a driver one one day. And um, so I ran the quarter midget. At the same time, I ran the kart for a little while. And it was a class back then, not maybe so much now, but back then where it was a bit more turnkey. So you'd put fuel in it, air in the tyres, and away you go. And, um, and and that was a lot easier for my dad to to sort of um, manage, I guess. And we had some success in that. And um, I guess kind of got hooked to Speedway um, and from, from that early time period, yeah. So two-pronged question here. Does that mean by necessity that you, because I mean, we're in the workshop here, you've got your beautiful midget in the background, TRD powered, CRC backed, it's awesome, that by necessity you learned to become mechanically minded or did you kind of have that? You had an, an inquisitive side in you that wanted to learn about about machines? Yeah, I was, I was definitely um, interested in it mm-hmm. um, and I had to be but not, because I had to be, I was just genuinely interested. interested and I, yeah. I, I love the mechanical side of racing um, and always have. So um, that coupled with the fact that I had to be because if, if you're not in my position, it was, it was going to be a struggle. So, mm. um, yeah, I do enjoy that aspect of it. So the quarter midget for people that aren't aware, I mean, uh, Kiwi listeners will know uh, three quarter midgets, for example, that have or TQs that have uh, 750cc Suzuki power plants in them, kind of a condensed or smaller version of what we have in the, the background here, your, your midget or speed car. What's a quarter midget and how much grunts it got and what sort of engines in it and so on? Well, I guess... Um it's supposed to be a quarter of the size of a midget, which is behind us here, but um, they are roughly quarter of the size. Um, little XR, well, back then they were an XR 200 four-stroke or you could run a 125 two-stroke, oh, which nice. is the since band. Yep. Um, so that they're a real neat class and still are a neat class for um, entry-level um, or youngsters to get into. Um, we've had Shane Van Gisbergen, and um, Cassidy. Nick yeah, Nick Cassidy, Cassidy um, yeah. There's been a few others over time that have started in quarter midgets, um, as well as racing. I think um, Shane had quad bikes and obviously go-karts as well as, but it's, it's a neat feeder class and, and, and great for um, car control, I guess, at a young age. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously successful because it's produced a lot of, um, lot of talent over the years. In, in essence, does it give you the base principles of what you kind of still use today or is it, is it uh, just very entry-level, the learnings when you get to midget are, are significantly more? It is entry-level. Um, on a track like Rosebank Road, it's Rosebank's quite small and it's got cinders, so it's quite loose. Um, the grip level is not as great as, say, Western Springs where you've got clay. Um, so it does teach you car control, but um, even TQs to a certain extent, um, until you get into a class that's got a lot of power and is somewhat undertired and you really have to grab it by the scruff and, and drive it, that's when you know you've got someone that's got some talent or not. Hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the cl- classes, um, are, you know, leading up to midgets or sprint cars, uh, they're very good for car control and learning racecraft. But um, because you're using every ounce of power you've got in a quarter midget and in a TQ, um, the opportunity to to um, have a motor or a car that's better than someone else is there. Mm-hmm. And that can make someone look either good or bad. Gotcha. Um, so when you get into a midget, there's no hiding. Mm. Don't matter what mod you got, what tie you got, what shocks you got, what fuel you got, you're cheating or not, don't matter. Mm. You've got to stand on your own two feet when you get to that level. Yeah, cool. Love that. So 
At what point does um, quarter midgets become a bit of an obsession for you and clearly the speedway path beckons? Because you said you were juggling both for a time there, weren't you, the karting as well? Yeah, I guess the, the, the results is what drew us to, to quarter midgets. You know, we, we, um, we had, um, I guess, almost instant success with it. We, we did buy a really good car um, off Jamie McDonald, who ironically I'm still racing against in sprinting yeah, cars today. yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, we had instant success damn near and had a lot of fun because of that. Um, so it was um, rewarding in that respect and, and that's really what, what drew us to Speedway, yeah. How did family kind of um, bolt all this together? I mean, you talked about Dad not necessarily having the, you know, the deep mechanical acumen, if you like. As you start doing this and you're going to more tracks and you've got to get budget and, and how did that all sort of work? How did that come together? You know, the... Quarter midget deer was um, we we chucked in the six by four garden trailer and and went racing. We, we stopped at the gas station on the way to. What the was track the tow car? What, what were you towing it with? Uh, I think our dad had a, a Mitsubishi Pajero back then. Yeah. It was like a ninety one, ninety two. Okay, you know we it was just super low key. Stopped yeah. on the um, the gas station on the way to track. Filled the Filled thing up, up with gas and go. You know what tracks were? Give give people a sense of the tracks you were racing. I mean, did you get to go to the Western Springs, for example, and things yeah, like that? Yeah, definitely. That was like the. Um, the mecca, I guess, of, of um, you know, places to go. Although the racing was best at Rosebank Road because it was smaller and, like I said earlier, it's got less grip, so the mm. cars move around a lot more. You mm. learn more there. Mm. Um, but that were, they were really the two tracks that um, that we raced at. And uh, at that sort of age, it was um, that was just so cool to be at Western Springs and just I was in absolute awe of, um, you know, like Kerry Jones and Alan Wakelin and sprint cars back then. And um, I guess... You know, in the midgets back then, there was, um, you know, Brett Horriman, Graham Standing was at the top of his game. Um, and ironically, he, he, he was he was the guy that wrote us a letter of dispensation to Speedway New Zealand to get me into a midget at age 15. Fantastic. So, He's still in the pit lane today, kind of yeah. doing doing interviews and stuff, isn't he, in the paddock there? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure yeah. is. So uh, at a young age, it was neat to be at Western Springs uh, rubbing shoulders with those those legends back then. Did the, the whole notion of going sideways and the Speedway bug kind of then bite hard? Were you like, right, this is me this is I mean did it become a bit of a distraction at school or what was it like yeah definitely um you know when you start wanting I guess in anything or being successful in anything it definitely um grabs your attention and you, and you want more so um at that young age I thought this is um something I want more of and and uh we never like I said earlier we never had a plan we ne- never had a um anything sketched out as this we're going to do this at this age and that at that age and um, you know, by the time you were this age, this is where you're going to be at, or hope to. It was, it was. We were just sort of um, having fun, really, mm. and um, we're just fortunate that um, we did certain things at certain times, and, and obviously things sort of fell into place for us. So, what were the the um, you know the pivotal moments, or titles, or, or race wins that helped you ultimately open the door to? to racing at the, the kind of premier level, if you like, to ultimately midgets and sprint cars. But my, my question is more about um, the realisation maybe by others around you that, right, this this kid's got something here and, and we could do more than just quarter midgets and, and lower key stuff. Yeah, it was um, – I guess it started with my very first race in a midget um, – Back then, uh, and still now actually, you, you have to start off the back for the first three races. And the very first two heat races I ever ran, ran, we started off the back and won. Oh. And it wasn't an A grade as such. It was it was a lesser grade. But it was, um, yeah, I mean, people 
sort of like, you know, who the hell is this kid? And, yeah. and just, just by chance, um, Brett Morris from then was Seamount Racing, um, his, his daughter was in the crowd and she happened to go to school with my brother and she went home and told Brett, hey, this young kid, that's the brother of a um, kid I went to school with, just won his um, first two ever races off the back. Awesome. So um, that led into sponsorship from Seamount Racing in our first ever year. And, um, and from there, we slowly built a relationship um, and Brett got an interest into Speedway because um, he had been involved years before, but uh, he had had a few years out of it. He got a, a, a bit of a bug, I suppose, um, and if it wasn't for him, uh, I, I wouldn't have had the equipment or the people around me to progress my career further, that's for sure. So that was definitely a pivotal moment in my career. The name Brett Morris appears in your world on both sides of the Tasman because you have a, another friend, an Aussie, by the name of Brett Morris, who we'll talk about in the in the podcast here. Let's keep with the, the Kiwi version that you've just, that you've just raised here. Having um, almost uh, guiding or mentor figures like that is vitally important and clearly he played a big a big role mate didn't he he certainly did um you know the sponsorship was one thing in the first year but um it was i wasn't until three years later uh we had some issues with motors blowing up whatnot and i actually sat a good part of my second and third season on the sidelines watching just because we didn't have we blew up motors we didn't have the budget to have spares and whatnot how tough was that Oh, man, it sucked as a youngster. But, mm. um, How old just, were you at this point? Uh, I was uh, first season, I was 15, 16. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazing, because like in Australia, they'd sort of go, you know, that's it's such an awesome age to be doing that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, it certainly yeah. was. Mm. And, and um, Brett was helping us on and off within the first couple of years. And in my third year, he actually owned the complete car for the first time in my third season. And that whole season, damn near, we set out with engine issues. Um, and that was... Um, Potentially a blessing in disguise because um, he got the shits and thought, no, stuff this, we're going to buy the best stuff we can. Okay. And um, we did that. And that's really when, when I, I, that was really my big break. Although I hadn't got a lot of miles on my belt at that stage, it was um, an opportunity to have the best gear underneath me. And with that came the best people. So I was really fortunate to have um, Tim Clark by my side and and also Kevin Payne, who is uh, uncle of Matthew Payne, yeah. who's running back supercars now, and he's a um, really, really clever crew chief um, and a person that I've become really good friends with over the years. We just we just clicked instantly, and then um, that's that was really the the point working with Kevin Payne as a crew chief where um, where the results started happening. Where were you for the first drive? in a midget. So so they've been called midgets for as long as I can remember. Speed cars is kind of the more modern day um, term for them. Um, the the iterations that we look at today uh, don't run a wing. They have a four-cylinder power plant. What are we talking horsepower-wise now? What, what sort of number would you be pulling now? Uh, so the midgets around the 380 mark. Mega. And they weigh what? Um, they weigh, without a driver, they'd weigh 407 kgs. Beautiful, sweet sound when they said, what they rev to? Uh, we, in America, they're rev limited. Mm-hmm. So that sort of uh, reflects on where we rev them to because they're designed around that limiter. Yeah. So um, we rev the TRD to 88, as, as 86, 87, 88. Still neat. It's still it's neat, mm-hmm. mate. It's mm-hmm. like a two-valve um, push rod, four-cylinder 
turning that RPM reliably week in week out is um, it's pretty impressive, and they, and they sound badass. Yeah, and you and you literally sit over the top of the drive line effectively. I mean, I, I think Mike Raymond, the the great Australian speedway commentator, used to talk about it being like sitting on a dunny kind of thing, and and you and you're steering them. Where was the first place you drove one? And in this audio experience, mate, paint a picture of what that car was like. Um, the, clearly, the the sort of smile and and the the feeling that it left you with. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was twenty five years ago, exactly. Really? And um, and I'll never forget it because we turned up at practice. Um, it was a Cosworth, uh-huh. so it was a, um, a BDP Cosworth, which was a Speedway uh, version. And um, it was it was a, a decent car in its day, but it was long in the tooth by the time we got it. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it was unbeknown to me, we were actually running on three cylinders. And and I, and I thought, oh, this is not too bad, you know. <laughs> and we we got back to the pits, and um, someone came over saying, um, obviously it sounded off, which I didn't realise. And uh, they said, oh, listen, you got a um, you're missing a cylinder. So they uh, had a plug lead off or something, and. Um, Bang that back on, went out for the second session, and and I um I damn near shit myself. I thought, bloody hell, this is um <laughs> got way it, more grunt than it had before. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, this is full on here. So um I'll never forget that it was the first first ever time in a midget, and um that's something I'll never forget because I thought you know um as a fifteen year old kid that's never drew anything else. Mm. Um, I mean back then the Cosworth was I, th- I think maybe around three hundred twenty horsepower or something like that, um, and it would. Turned, I think, from memory, around about ten thousand RP, nine or ten thousand somewhere Mega. around there. So that was Mega. a cool, cool, throaty old sound to it too. Four valve twin cam, um, but yeah, that, that, that's an experience I'll never forget. So, are you at this stage at school doing things that that help you on the mechanical side, or is it night times? You know, working with the crew, learning. What what are you doing outside of the car to to make you a, a better sort of rounded racer that you are today sitting across the table from me? Yeah, I've, I've always worked on my own cars because um, I've had to, but also I like doing it, I enjoy doing it. And, and it's uh, I think it's important as a racer to understand mechanically what's going on underneath you, um, particularly if you want to make changes or if you have um, an issue, you can don't have to rely on any, anyone else. You can be a bit more self-sufficient. So, um, yeah, we just, it's always, I've always had a, a full-time job unless I've been racing full-time overseas. Um, so it's, it's always after hours. And to be honest, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's, it's a part of it I, I actually really enjoy. Um, and a couple of hours, the boys will be here um, washing the sprint car tonight. Excellent, so, excellent. Um, and it's always um, it's just, just, just a, a, a fun time because we, we um, you know, we, we, um, we shoot the shit and carry on and, and um, we enjoy each other's company and I think that's really important. You know, you spend so much time around these guys uh, throughout the summer and winter for that matter, but um, you, you have to enjoy each other's company and, and, and enjoy what you do. The trucks literally just arrived back from Christchurch, which I think was, was it national titles you were down there? Was it Correct, yeah. Second? Yeah. Second, yeah. does that hurt a little bit or? Oh, look, it's not the result you go there for, um, but there's 41 other cars um trying for that, that, that top spot. So um, sometimes it, um, it's, uh, you know, that, that's the result you got and, and you've got to be happy that it's um, not in a clean sack having to rebuild the whole thing. So, um, you know, yeah, I would say I'll try again next year. Bryony Ingerson, who's a Speedway commentator in Australia, works for supercars nowadays as a, as a producer and um, presenter, good operator, loves a Speedway. She said for me to ask you, sprint car, or speed car, and that's probably a very hard thing to answer, mate. Is it which, or is it is it the midget that is your your thing? Uh, I get asked that all the time. Honestly, every couple of weeks, someone asks me, and, and um, my answer is always the same. In that, as as a race car, the sprint car is more rewarding. 
Uh, you know, sprint cars, uh, you know, run 900 horsepower. It's um, super light. The power to weight ratio is just stupid. Um, you've got nearly a ton of downforce on a, on a high-speed track. So the aero is crazy. Tires are crazy big. Horsepower is crazy. It's, it's, a, it's a rewarding race car to drive. Um, the midget is um, more racy because of the lack of aero. Um, they tend to move around a lot and you can manipulate the car a lot more because of the lack of aero. Mm-hmm. It's not locked down as such. So from a racing standpoint, the midgets to me is probably more enjoyable. Okay. But from a, a, a race car perspective, the, the sprint car is more rewarding. Cool, good answer. They have a, the, the speed cars or midgets have this kind of beautiful um, simplicity about them and that, that's actually the wrong word. I probably shouldn't say that. But wh- wh- where I'm going here is that the essence of what they sort of started out with is still embodied in in some ways in them today. It's not, uh, I'm sure you'll tell me there's lots of great and very important tweaks about them, but but they haven't gone insane with um, data and all sorts of other, there there is a, um, a simplicity is the word I was saying before about them, isn't there? Yeah, you're actually actually dead right, they are simple. And and that's why um, the sports is, as popular as what it is here and overseas because you don't need an engineer with a laptop and, a, and an engineering degree to, to operate a, a speedway car. And that's why they've um, kept the rules the way they are overseas because obviously that all filters down to New Zealand and Australia. But um, there's, there's virtually no electronics uh, other than the ignition, of course. Um, there's, uh, you know, traction controls are illegal, throttle position sensors are illegal, uh, map sensors you know, you, you're basically not allowed any data logging at all. Mm-hmm. But it's it's awesome because we've got mechanical fuel injection. Um, it's just jamming fuel into a cylinder regardless of what stroke it's on. And it shoots massive flames and sounds awesome. Um, it's it's what makes um, Speedway Speedway because a, a blue-collar guy can go racing mm-hmm. and work it on him, himself in his garage at home during the week and, and um, turn up to the track with his covered in trailer and, and um, potentially go and win against anyone with any budget. Amazing. What's tunable on the run as a driver? And that's probably quite quite limited. Uh, the, the reason I asked the question is that there was um, great yarn they did on Fernando Alonso in Formula One and how he could, the myriad of buttons that are, that are on an F1 steering wheel and what he could change and, and adjust on the run. And, and he could almost do it by braille, mate. He'd learnt um, you could blindfold, get you know, put a blindfold on and, and know which button to, to press. Because you're doing laps at some joints in, I don't know, 13 seconds, 12 seconds, whatever it might be, I mean, it's busy. It's busy for you. And then you're in a crowd of X amount of cars and, and so on. So what is changeable on the run? And does that become a bit like that, a bit braille? Like you, could, you can you know you can do a click and it's, you don't even have to look at it. Does it become like that? Um, it, it, it does, although, uh, you know, when you've got a good crew chief, they'll, um, they'll get to cut the car to the point where it, it, it should be pretty well close to being perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, the wing and the sprint car we can adjust fore and aft, which makes a massive difference, and you are always adjusting that mm-hmm. um, depending on fuel load and the way the track changes. Um, the midget is more about adjusting shocks, but to be perfectly honest, we don't really adjust a, a whole okay. lot. Um, you've, you've pre-done that knowing track evolution or what you're expecting of the track, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. the only races we will 
almost always adjust the shocks will be like a 50 lap or somewhere like that. We start with quite a heavy fuel load mm-hmm. and by the end of it, you've, you've, you've burnt off um, a, a, a good amount of weight in the, in the back. Um, plus the track has, has gone away obviously a, a lot because of the 49 laps prior because it's the last lap that counts of course. So um, yeah, I mean, I mean, not a, not a, not a whole lot. And um, you know, I think when, when you've got a crew chief that's a, maybe a little bit more hit and miss, then it probably opens up the opportunity to, to adjust shocks. But I got the best guys around me, and, and that's um, yeah, we don't really muck around too much with them on the run. When did you get to that point where you could look at the track and know? Uh, I don't know from early in the night how much water was in it and and what it was likely to do, the way it was likely to go, the direction it might go, and then and then walk around the the pits and paddock here and go, you know, like notice different things other drivers were doing. When did that sort of stuff become a bit second nature to you? Uh, it was probably after I went to America um, because it, it's just so competitive up there. Because that, that is an art, mate, isn't it, all that stuff? I mean, it, yes, it's a, a, a learned thing from all the miles you do, but it is an art, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, and that's where a really good crew chief um, comes into his own because they, they, they are experts in running the track themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, I guess the first time I went to America and come back to New Zealand, uh, everything th- seems to slow down here. It's just, it's becomes, it seems easier. Yeah. Um, and, and reading the track and that sort of thing and the way they run the cars so hard up there um, is um, definitely an, an advantage for you there. If you're enjoying this episode of The Garage, make sure you check out Rusty's chat with World Speedway bike racing legend Jason Crump. The fans sure got pretty rowdy when the Aussies took the chocolates in Poland. At the end of the meeting, we actually had to have about 10 police cars to drive us out of the stadium. We were on the floor in the van. We had two armoured police sitting in the front. They were driving it. We had police cars and vans in front beside take us straight to our hotel. The police got us out of the vehicle and took us into the hotel and actually had riot squad out the front of the hotel room for the whole night. From two wheels back to four as we continue the chat with Speedcar star Michael Pickens. Fill in some blanks for us before we get to America and and Australia and and things like that. How does, um, you know, you alluded to it before, Brett Morris decides to go harder in terms of the gear that they buy and, and the, um, the program that, you, that you're doing. What year is this and does this really then start to, to take off? And are you, what sort of part-time job are you working on the side or something or what, what's your full-time job on the side? Um, so it was, would have been my third year in Speedway. Um, so you're about, what, 17, 18 here maybe? Yeah, it would have been um, about 19. I won my first... New Zealand title, so that was um, 0203 season, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's that's yeah that 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 season was a season that I, I really um, come of age, I guess, and and got my feet on the ground and got comfortable, and has you know some really good car speed. So um, that was that was really 0203 would have been the year, and and um, at that stage I was um, an apprentice uh, auto electrician. Okay. So um, yeah, t- turning up to to work um, most days pretty tired and buggered from either working on the race car <laughs> or racing or, or whatever. So um, there are a lot of, there's some good times back then. Was it you 
planning to try and experience the American scene or go to Australia or was the phone starting to ring? How did those opportunities come about? Um, it, it, um, it, it was just a natural progression of, um, of winning races here and particularly um, back then they had, well, and they still do now, but they, they had the best of the best guys coming down from America to race and also from Australia. Um, and, and that's when I first really experienced racing overseas is going to Australia and, and racing at, at what, what was Parramatta and, and Sydney great, great track, that great it, track, great little track. It's mm. probably been... It probably is my my favourite dirt track. Mm. Such it, a shame it's gone. Yeah, yeah, mm. it really is. Um, and so I ran for a guy, or well, actually Mark Cooper uh, over there, who's actually a Kiwi but lives there now, and um, and then ran for uh, Steve Smith, and um, and he really gave my first big break in America um, by taking his own cars from Australia to America. He built his own Chev-based engines Excellent. in Australia, yep. and he wanted to showcase them in America. So. Um, he gave him a first first break with that and good equipment in America, and, and that's um, that that was a big turning point for me for sure. What tracks on that first trip, and how difficult was is it? Was it sort of shoestring? Were you were you doing it tough? How, what was that first um, trip like? It was um, shoestring. Yeah, I mean he was um, one man band essentially, and uh, we we had um, you know his two cars. Um, they were actually New Zealand built chassis, our breakers. So um, I was somewhat familiar with them, which was an advantage, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, we, we, we won my f- our first ever race at uh, Sampuri, which was in Wisconsin. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll never ever forget that. That was back when Sampuri ran on a Sunday night and was um, hugely competitive because there's no other racing around, so guys have travelled from all over to, to race there. Um, I mean, to give you an idea, Tony Stewart ran there for years and never ever won a race. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was, um, it was, a, it was a tough deal. And um, I'll never forget, I, I got a message um, the following week after I won a race there um, from a gentleman who is originally from Ashburton, New Zealand, but he had worked for Ralph Racing for maybe 25 years at that stage. And he said, hey, would you be interested in um, testing a, a, a Craftsman truck? Fantastic. Yeah, so that's sort of how the NASCAR thing started. And um, I mean, I was as green as grass, had no pavement experience at all other than go-karts. So um, we went to North Wilkesboro, Speedway, North Carolina. Yeah. And, Which um, features in the Days of Thunder movie, I think. So yeah. yeah, yeah, and they've actually just renovated the whole facility, and they're going to run there again. So, um, but back then it was uh, grass was growing out of the cracks in the track, and Crazy. it was it was literally just a um, you know a, a backyard track. Really, it was it was run down and and and. Um, what was that truck like, mate? What was that thing it like was, to drive? I, I I jumped in it, and um, that so what was it was what they called the Gong Show. So Discovery Channel funded this whole deal through Roush Racing, mm-hmm. and. Um, and it was, uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. I, I jumped in the thing, didn't even know. I had to ask the guys, where are the gears at? And, and this, and it was the first time I'd ever driven a dog box. Was, they had a, a four-speed Jericho in them. And um, it was just really cool. You know, you put the thing in first and the, and the whole truck sort of shutters and um, oh, they might have been eight, 800-odd horsepower. horsepower. Guys. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just, just the animal of a thing. Yeah. And... Um, the track was super green because there was no racing on. There was no rubber on it at all, and um, super green, super abrasive, and the trucks are just sliding around all over the show. So it was, it was a really, really cool experience. And um, and from that, I got invited back um, the following year um, by Roush Racing and Discovery to do the, um, I guess, the second version of the Gong Show, which was at um, Martinsville. Nice. So started with um, twenty five drivers, made it down to the final cut, which was 12, um, we went to Darlington Speed 1, South Carolina. Yeah. And um, that was, to this day, um, 
other than getting married and having a daughter, of course, one of the best experiences I've, I've ever had in a race car was um, that just scared the living shit out of you. <laughs> it was unbelievable. We, um, so there's, there's 12 of us, like I say, we, um, we turned up to, to um, Darlington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was before they repaved it. They repaved it maybe six, seven years ago, mm-hmm. and it was um, super abrasive. And um, so your, your tyre degradation would, would, would be insane. So we turned up there and um, they put us in a room uh, so we couldn't see what was going on. And they had Carl Edwards um, and another guy, I can't think of his name, but he, they had the two pro drivers that were employed by Ralph at that stage to shake down the, the two trucks because mm-hmm. they had the truck that the smaller guys would fit in and the truck that the bigger guys would fit in. So they wanted to have some parity between the trucks and shake them down properly. So we could hear them go out. They ran on a, a, a tyre that they used in the IROC series, the oh, International yeah. Race of Champions. Mm-hmm. Now, super soft tyre so that the tyre would fall away super quick with the abrasiveness of the track and um, you'd hear them go into turn one wide open so no lift at all <laughs> so the truck's got actually a fair amount of aero um, which you wouldn't really expect Mar- Marcus Ambrose described it to me he came on the pod years ago and, and he talked about the way it, it would run down the side of the truck and off the edge and the things the little things that you would never imagine that are there for that effect mate yeah it's, yeah it's pretty mm. cool mm. so we heard these drivers anyway going into turn one wide open and that, and you'd, you'd hear them lift and then get roll back into it and whatnot. So we're just we're all sitting there listening to. That's all we could do is listen to mm. what picture, much, try and picture yeah. what it's doing. Mm. And we quickly noticed that after three or four laps, they weren't going to turn one wide open anymore. <laughs> so, so you knew the tyres were falling away super quick. And then mm. by the end of the run, which was maybe 10, 15 laps, it was um, nowhere near fourth what we're getting to turn one. So anywho, by the time we got strapped into the truck. I knew in my back of my mind I can go into turn one wide open and that was, I think, 180 mile an hour. So you damn hauling the mail and um, you're in the- Strap those belts in. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and they're nice trucks. They're, they're proper race trucks. They weren't mm. just some old shitters they had parked up back. <laughs> and um, so anyway, went in there wide open and um, if anyone's familiar with Darlington, um, you, you, you run the car down to the, uh, to the bottom of the apron mm. and then the truck will just slowly just- drift up, all, all four wheels. Yeah. All just with, with the force going through the corner, yeah. basically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, while you're wide open and then you, you basically slide to the very top of the track and then it, you get a, a little bit of grip right up by the wall and that's where you end up exiting the turn. Wow. It's, it's um, like I say, that scared the shit out of me. But <laughs> at that point, you've got nothing to lose, you know. Yeah. you just got to um, nut up and, and get it done. And after three or four laps, um, you knew it was coming, but definitely the tyres fell away super quick. So the truck's moving around like crazy at the mm. end and like coming off a of turn four, um, it's quite an art to, to come off a of turn four and, and the, the amount of throttle you can use coming off there is, is um, feels like nothing. And so much power and, and so little tire at the, at the end of a run, it was um, just such a awesome experience. It was mm. really, really cool. Awesome thing. Where did that sort of end up? Was it um, the kind of thing that tempted you for more or was it just tough because of the competition? Or Yeah, well, the, the, the problem I had is I had no pavement experience. Mm. And so I was up against, um, if anyone's familiar with David Reagan. So he, oh, yeah. he yep. ended up um, he ended up getting the, the ride that year and he ended up in, in cup. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he still runs part-time now. But those guys were running Late Arca. models and Arca. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he, he yep. came out of Arca. Um, the other guys were all coming out of um, ASA late models or, or pavement speedway cars. So, um, I mean, I was as green as grass. Um, we got down to the um, fourth person um, in, the, in the cut, but and I got a Ford deal out of it. They they helped me a little bit, but um, it was an, a big investment for them to 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 make in someone that had no 
experience. So um, he got the full deal out of it and then and that progressed to where um, we put a deal to run uh, ASA North Series, which is similar to a TA2 car that they've launched in New Zealand, but uh, but the um, lesser horsepower, but basically the same similar sort of car for, for oval racing on pavement. And um, we set quick time at Milwaukee, won a race up in um, uh, Michigan, and um, I had a third place at Hickory, North Carolina. So nice. got some results, but um, just lacked a, a whole lot of funding behind me to, 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 to make that next step. But um, experience, I'll never forget, that's for sure. Did you go to Roush in in, uh, in North Carolina there? I mean, it's yeah. in Charlotte. I, I, I went a few years ago. Lee Diffie's a, a colleague and friend and commentates IndyCar for NBC now and so on. He gave me the tour and, and introduced me to some of the key people at Roush and got to go behind the scenes and have a look. And most people... Don't, I mean, it's like a mini suburb, mate. You go in there and there's, you know, turn left down that cul-de-sac and that's engine shop and then paints down the way and it's massive, mate. Absolutely crazy, massive, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. That's absolutely crazy. And that was back when I did it. It was Roush Racing and, and um, not Roush Fenwell, RFK, what it is now, but it was when they had um, track-specific cars. So they had short track, medium track, long track, road course cars and um, all the bodies were, were metal or steel, um, you know, so the... The panel shop was obviously flat busy. out busy every week. <laughs> and uh, from memory, they had about 100 cars um, between the drivers and what cars they need for certain tracks. So it was, it was abs- I mean, it's different now, of course, um, with what they run. But, um, yeah, man, it's, it's eye-opening for sure. So the focus is um, after the kind of the foray with, with a bit of that stuff is still clearly dirt. You obviously wanted to experience more... Uh, American tracks. Where are we going? Did you go to Kokomo? Did you go? What, what places did you go on race at? When you were um, there? So I, I needed to get my name out there. Um, I would have been sort of early twenties at that stage, and um, and I just need to win races, like like any young driver, I guess. And um, I based myself out of Wisconsin and Indiana, so the Midwest of America. So you made a move. You went there and and or yeah, just I, temporarily, or you yeah, went there? I temporarily stayed up there for the entire summer, and then I've then I would race back here in our summer. So um, fortunate enough to have um, the opportunity to almost live somewhere around, but um, did that for a few years and, and we won a bunch of races, um, but my focus was always NASCAR and always as getting onto pavement as whenever I could. Mm. Um, but we went to, yeah, Co- Kokomo, Indiana, Bloomington, Lawrenceburg, like all over the show. I mean, I've raced at um, a ton of tracks. I've, I've probably forgotten half of them, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, an experience I'll never forget. And, and the Midwest of America is um, yeah, a really awesome part of the country. Mm. They have a thing that Owen Kelly told me about in the podcast recently that, you know, it's maybe it's not the same now, but for a time that, you know, drivers could turn up, people were looking for drivers, drivers were looking for rides and, and so on. How did opportunities come about in, in America beyond that, um, that initial introduction? Before the... Um, Global financial crisis in 2008. It was um, it was really really strong up there. You know, um, yeah. I mean, car owners were literally looking for drivers. You know, they um, they had multiple cars. Um, it was it was awesome. You know, that their manufacturers were, were putting a lot of money into Speedway, um, and they are now. But um, at, after 2008, it definitely slowed down a lot. Um, people were cutting back. Um, but yeah, before 2008, when I was first went up there, it was. Um, you know, it was it was crazy that the Steve Smith guy that I dra- drove for out of Australia, um, GM USA, uh, were using his engines from Australia and as a GM engine. Wow. It was Chef base. Mm-hmm. So it gives you an idea of the opportunity that there was back then. Mm. It was um, it was really cool. And 
Uh, it's come back to the point now where the manufacturers um, are putting money back into it, particularly Toyota. Um, Toyota wasn't really around in, in speed, well they weren't around in Speedway back then, but um, it was a um, pretty, pretty neat time. That's the end of part one of my podcast with Speedcar star Michael Pickens. Don't forget our new shortcasts are regularly in the Rusty's Garage Library where we tackle all sorts of current issues in the world of motorsport and automotive. We recently debriefed the drama of the Formula One Australian Grand Prix and I'm also grateful to Shane Van Gisbergen who came on after his summer of Speedway in New Zealand to talk about the challenges around Gen 3 and moving forward after a bit of a flashpoint opening of the supercars season in Newcastle. That is a great chat that I hope you enjoy. Michael Pickens though is one of our regular long form episodes and I know that you love those. The good news is we are only halfway through. Jump back to the library when you're ready and enjoy part two. Chili Bowl, some moments that will forever be etched in his memory, plus a bit of a revelation on his future plans. (laughs) 